Hello, hello. Welcome to Tuckered Out with me, Ami Tucker. Today, I talked to Rohit Bhargava, who is the founder and chief trend curator of the non-obvious company and is widely considered one of the most entertaining and original speakers on trends and marketing in the world. Rohit believes the world needs more non-obvious thinking, and he helps leaders and professionals to be more open-minded, helps them see what others miss, and learn to anticipate the future. He actually used the word futurist to kind of sum up what he does, and I'm totally going to take that from him. I just don't know how to be a futurist yet, but this is why I talked to him. Outside of speaking and consulting, Roeth is also the co-founder of Idea Press Publishing, a fast-growing independent publisher that specializes in working with top authors to publish beautiful business books. And let me tell you guys, Roeth is definitely entertaining, original, super intelligent, and just a really nice guy. I really enjoyed getting to know him. He also happens to be a featured speaker at this year's South by Southwest. So look forward to meeting him in person. I hope you guys enjoy my interview with Rohit Bhargava. So founder and chief trend curator. Is that a new title or a cute title? Is that It's a made up title, like like all titles. I like it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so non-obvious company, discussing trends and marketing with brands and leaders, and you help them see what others miss in a more non-obvious way. Yeah, I've actually got um I've actually got two companies. So the non-obvious company is the one that I do a lot of the speaking and writing and okay. stuff. And then I also uh co-founded a publish a book publishing company called Idea Press. Right. So that's the so I'm sort of an entrepreneur with like two different businesses and then I switch back and forth. You're basically like the 2022 entrepreneurs. Like that's where everyone's like doing everything I feel like nowadays. Like if you don't have a book, <laughs> like you can't make it, I feel like basically. Yeah, books uh a book's pretty yeah. uh pretty yeah. useful. Yeah. yeah. I got to yeah. start on that. I'm on I'm on my 17th newsletter, so I'm like maybe I should make a few more before the book. But yeah. well, you are my 98th episode for the podcast. Oh, so close to 100. So close. Building the content. Yes, slowly building the content. It's great. Trends in marketing. For someone like me, he doesn't know anything. It feels like only a magician can understand trends in marketing nowadays. It just feels like everything is on crack and crazy, especially since uh, the social medias of our world have been out. I know you've worked in Leo Burnett, Ogilvy, you've had all this experience. And, you know, from what I've read... There was a point or many points of frustration and you were like, screw yeah. this. I'm going to write my own shit, my own trends. You write your first book. Well, I, I was going to say, I actually wrote my first two books while I kept my day job, okay. which was an interesting challenge. Okay. Uh, so I didn't actually leave until after I, uh, after I wrote those first two. So I was still employed while I was doing it, which uh, was, was tough, but good too, because, you know, I had a, a fallback thing. So this was based on frustration, correct? You were like, wait, no one knows. I need to let everyone know this is frustrating. I have my own thoughts. Let me put that, let me put it down. Yeah, it was, I mean, you know, I was pretty lucky, I think, uh, because I was in the sort of job where they, to a point, they liked that I was publishing thoughts and being a thought leader out there because it helped them, right? Right. It helped them get more clients and it helped them look good. I think the challenge that I ended up having was when I started doing professional speaking, keynote speaking, and that started to take off. Then I ran into multiple challenges. I mean, one was the obvious scheduling challenge, which is I have a day job and now somebody wants me to go travel somewhere. So I have to spend a day, maybe two days going and traveling there on my own time. And I would take a day off to do it. Right. That was my deal with them. But eventually they're like, why are you not here? Like we need you for whatever, you're, <laughs> whatever we're doing, right. not going off and doing this speaking stuff. So that was one challenge. And the other challenge was, the speaking got higher profile. And when you're doing higher profile speaking and you're not the guy in your company, there are people who are the guy who are like, why is he doing that instead of me? Right. Uh, and I did run into some of that too. Right. I mean, when you were doing initially doing these speaking engagements, 
were you you were going under the company's name or were you doing this kind of as a solo uh consultant? no speaking gigs mostly i mean when you go and speak under a company's name you're usually selling something right and you're usually not getting paid for it got it when you go and speak under your name as a professional speaker you're getting paid right um and it's you that they're asking for and you happen to be affiliated with the company but it's actually you as a personality right i'm surprised then that they were allowing you to do it right well i had negotiated i thought it was pretty clever because okay. at, at the at point i had negotiated that i could do this as a side gig but i would have to take a day off every time i did it because then i would be getting double paid like i'd be doing it on their time which wasn't fair and right i totally got that right i mean when i wrote my first two books i took one day off per week and i took a 20 percent pay cut to go off and write the book because I didn't want any perception to be out there that I was writing a book while I was supposed to be working right. for them. This is awesome. So you were you know, at this company, you were saying at that point, there were many guys that were the guy versus you. Yeah. I guess one, did you have any imposter syndrome? Did you, were you like, do I know what I'm talking about? Like, how did you have the confidence to go out there and do it and, and know what you were saying was the yeah. right thing when Perhaps there were people ahead of you, um, quotations in air, or above you in your company that are technically supposed to know more. Well, I, first of all, I think everybody has some level of imposter syndrome. Right. It's a natural human thing. Right. What didn't hold me back, though, was looking at myself as objectively as I could in comparison to other people. You know, I would read what I wrote and then I would read what they wrote. I would watch a video of me on stage and I would watch a video of them on stage. And that was the fastest cure for any imposter syndrome because I would look at what I was putting out and say, it's better. Um, yeah. And I'm getting better feedback on it. And pretty quickly, it's hard to feel like an imposter when you're getting yeah. rewarded for something and you look at your competition, even though that wasn't really a competitive situation, but you look at other things that other people are doing and you self-assess and you're like, my stuff's pretty good. Yeah. I started doing that recently, by the way. It took me a while. But I was like, oh, wait a minute. It does take a while. I kind of I kind of know what I'm doing now. And yeah, it does it takes a while for yeah. sure to be able to pat yourself on the back. But once you get there, it's it's awesome. So tell me about that time till you published your, I guess Megatrend. Is that what it's called? 2020? Yeah, yeah. So I um so that was so there was like a 10-year journey for me in this world of non-obvious, which wasn't always about a book. So I started publishing a trend report, which was basically a PowerPoint presentation. Okay. Back in 2011. And the first two years that I did it, it was just a PowerPoint presentation. And it, the first year I released it, I got like 100,000 people looking at it. It was, you know, pretty good for me. And you released it just and publicly, then, like on your social media publicly, page? On my blog. On your blog. I had a blog. Got it. Yeah. And in 2011, there were a lot fewer blogs and people were paying a lot more attention to blogs. Right. So right. that was a great place to learn something. Right. Um, now it's much more crowded, yes, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, so the second year, uh, the end of the year came around and I thought, well, it did so well last year. I should probably just do it again. And being a branding guy, I knew that consistency matters. Mm -hmm. So I named it the same thing, the non-obvious trend report. And I published it again and it got four times as many people looking at it. Okay. And so then the third year I was like, you know, I should probably, uh, at that point I had already published a book. I had been working on my second book. And I'm like, you know, I could just release this myself as an ebook. I don't need a publisher. I can just slap it on Amazon for Kindle and see what happens. So I did that for the third year and the PowerPoint. So I did the PowerPoint, which also went viral again. Right. And I had this ebook to say, hey, if you like the PowerPoint, go and buy the ebook for 99 cents or 2.99 or whatever I sold it for. Yeah. Right. And it became like a number one bestseller on Amazon in certain categories and stuff. That's amazing. Which, you know, it's not that hard to do. Yeah. Uh, then I was like, oh, this is really taken off. So the fourth year I did it again that same way. And it was only in the fifth year. Uh, which at that point I'd done my two books with big traditional publishers. I'd become frustrated with it. I felt like there was enough momentum after the first four years of this non-obvious report that I could do a full length book around it. And I wanted to start a publishing company to be able to control the whole process of doing it. Okay. But I didn't want to give up in-store distribution or airports or any of the stuff that a quote unquote real publisher would do. And I wanted a physical book and I wanted right. it to be beautiful. Wow. So, so you, you were really frustrated with, with the publishers. You were like, I'm done. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I wanted, I knew what I wanted. Okay. Right. And I knew that it didn't exist. And the entrepreneurial mindset is if you know what you want, it doesn't exist, then you go and try and make it. Right. And the, the faith is that other people will want that too. Right. But right. at that point, I wasn't even thinking about it as a business. I was just thinking, okay, if I had my own publishing company, I could publish my own stuff. And how awesome would that be? Right. Uh, 
And so that's what found, well, that's what, uh, led my wife and I to found idea press. Okay. And that was 2015. Okay. So was that started before the non-obvious company? Right before. Okay. Yeah. So that was started before the first time we published it as a book. Okay. Um, so started idea press published non-obvious as a book. Then it hit the wall street journal bestseller list and became an official bestseller. Right. Um, and at that point we got a lot of attention. Um, the whole thing exploded in terms of audience. Uh, I had left, um, Ogilvy at that point. Right. And other authors started coming to us and we built idea press into a business, which was not expected either, but because of the success of non-obvious right. that happened. And, and so this platform was really cemented at that point. And then every year since then, 2016, 17, 18, 19, I wrote an annual version of the same book. Right. So there's a new version of the book comes out at the beginning of the year. Every single one did amazingly well. It drove a ton of keynote speaking, uh, more consulting than I wanted because that was really time consuming. And so I scaled right. that back, did more speaking. And then finally, in 2020, two months before the pandemic, uh, I published the final version of the book. And that was a 10 year project in my life. Okay. Uh, and that book was called Non-Obvious Megatrends. Was that an accumulation um, of everything? Accumulation of everything. Okay. Yeah. All right. All together. All right. Uh, that one hit number one on the Wall Street Journal list. And uh, we were doing a book tour, doing a lot of marketing. And then the pandemic happened and everything closed. Everything changed. Uh, yeah. Yep. Everything changed at that moment. <laughs> Time to evolve um, again, right? Yeah. And I imagine writing a book about trends in the future two months before the pandemic. Uh, right? <laughs> I mean, You're like, wah, that's a tough wah, thing to do. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That was sort of the the cap of that project at that point. So, I mean, I feel like there's so many people out there, you know, talking about trends and, and they have their predictions and it just, it's overwhelming sometimes. So what is it yeah. that you think you're doing besides having, you know, the obvious experience, the personality that you have, but what do you, what is it that you're finding that you think other people aren't like, why is it that people are coming to you? Why is it number one? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. So, well, there's actually two questions in that, right? So one is why am I the guy? To why are this? you the guy? Uh, and the other is why was it successful? Right. Which is a marketing question really. Okay. Uh, because there's plenty of amazing books that are well-written, well-researched, but don't do that well and it's right. because they don't have the market. Right. So the first question, like, why am I the guy who does this? I didn't always expect to be that guy. Uh, and I, fell into it. But the reason why I think I was able to do it is because my whole career, I've worked in uh, consulting or agency type environments. And there are certain hallmarks of growing up in that working environment. You're surrounded by creative people. Right. You're always working on different clients. You're not working on one industry. You work on multiple things. You deal with multiple people. You go to multiple places. And so your brain has to switch right. a lot. Right. And you become accustomed to that. Yeah. And when I went in and did these speaking gigs in different industries, and I would talk to the jewelry industry or the heating and air conditioning industry or the technology industry or about toothbrushes or about you know nonprofit campaigns to try and reduce AIDS in third world countries, it, you know, getting your brain around all that stuff is not the typical career, right? The typical career is I work in financial services. I take a different job at a different company at a higher level right. in that same industry. Right. I'm an industry expert. And I was never an industry expert. I was a knowledgeable industry, you know, sort of observer. Right. And that really benefited me when I started doing this trend work, because when you do that, you have to become a fast observer of everything. Of everything. Right. Yeah. Kind of like another and education not, in a way. Yeah. 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 You have to pay attention. Right. And most people don't do that. And they don't do it effectively, right? So like I would go, for example, to Brazil and I would go to Rio and I would go to Sao Paulo and I would notice that in one of those cities, they kiss on the cheek three times when they greet each other and on the other country, they kiss on the cheek twice. And so now every person that I meet, I know exactly how to greet them. Not because I read the book on what to do in Brazil or because I've been there many times or because I am Brazilian, yeah. but because I watched right. people. Right, right, right. Sounds super simple and super obvious. No, it's but it's not. It's actually not obvious. Everything. I think it's also yeah, yeah. A, another differentiator. It's also kind of it's just your personality too, right? Where there might be another yeah. person on your level, you know, learning the same things, going doing the having the same education and work experience, but if they don't have whatever you want to call it, curiosity or empathy or whatever it is to learn about all these things, yeah. they're not going to be able to grasp those concepts, no matter what they do. So I think you also yeah, have that I mean, innately in you, right? 
Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think that what ended up happening when I started noticing this quote unquote superpower was two things. One is I saw the things that no one else saw because I was paying attention. Right. The other thing I realized is this is not something that I had to get a PhD in order to do. This is not something that I was born knowing how to do. This is a skill that I developed over time. Right. And if that's true, then anyone can develop it over time. And that became my guiding mission. It wasn't to be the trend guy that would go in, be smart about the future and to predict the future, which is what most futurists do. Right. It was to be the guy who would teach people how to think like a futurist so that you could do it for yourself. And that became my thing that stood out from all the other futurists out there, that I was the guy who was not just going to tell you the trends. Yes, I will do that because they're sexy and everyone wants to know. Right. But I was going to teach you how to think in this way. And nobody else was doing it. Futurist. I like that. Yeah. I want to add that to my resume. <laughs> just, it's a good one. I, I, I haven't heard that one yet. So, so definitely opens doors. So you are sure. you are teaching people how to be a futurist, and so you're you're saying it it's it doesn't have to be innate. It can it can be learned even with people even with people that may have, say, a lower EQ or someone that's not as social. Yeah, I mean, look, the uh, there is some there is some skill involved in figuring out what it means. Right. So just observing something alone isn't enough. You have to be able to put the pieces together to say, okay, this is right. happening over here. Something else is happening somewhere else. What does that mean altogether? Which means you have to be thoughtful about it. Now, can anyone come up with the best conclusions? No. Yeah. I think that that is a skill that you have to really hone and become good at, just like m many people are not strategic. That's just not the way they think. Right. Uh, but if you grow up in business in a role that always involved some sort of strategy, whether it was communication strategy or storytelling strategy or brand strategy, you think like a strategist. Right. And when you think like a strategist, you're always putting pieces together to say, what should I, what does this mean? Like, what's the insight right. behind all of these things? And that was how my brain had been trained to work for my whole career. Right. And so when I came to this, it was natural. You know, nowadays, uh, the whole working in corporate America, going down that path is like so not cool. People aren't doing it anymore. I don't even know Gen Z what we're on right now. You know, I'm a little old school. My husband's worked with Pepsi for 18 years. Do you think working in corporate America has gotten you where you are today? Yeah, I think it definitely helped, but not for the reason that I think you might be alluding to. Um, I think it helped me, first of all, because when I did become an entrepreneur, pretty much when I turned 40 was when I became an entrepreneur. Right. I didn't have to struggle in the way that many entrepreneurs sort of struggled right. because I had a network. Right. And at a certain point in your career, I think that networking, this idea of networking, is no longer about meeting new people. It's about remembering who you've already met. Right. And figuring out what you need to do It's reconnecting with the right forgot. people. Correct. Right. Yeah, correct. Right. And- when I became an entrepreneur, that became urgent for me to do because all of a sudden I had no paycheck coming in and I had two kids and, you know, what am I going to do? Right. right. And so that forced me to start thinking about the network a little bit differently. And it really helped me. It helped me to do it later in my career because I knew people and people knew me. Right. People knew the, all the work you've done. So like you didn't have to prove yourself to anyone. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Look, I, I kind of started this at 40 and have the strong network and it's been, I'm, I'm glad I did it that way as well. It worked out for me that way as well. So totally agree yeah. with you. Okay. The mega trends 2020. Can you give me a few things people can pull out of that if they were to read it? Yeah. So it's, uh, it's got two parts. Okay. The book. Uh, the first part is how to think like a non, how to be a non-obvious thinker okay. is basically what I call it. And it teaches you a bunch of different habits, five habits in particular, to be able to do that. So the first one we've sort of already talked about, which is, you know, observe, like, you know, pay attention to details. Um, the second one, which relates to that is be curious. So pay attention because you're curious. Um, the third one is to be thoughtful. Mm -hmm. uh, and being thoughtful means taking time to think. Uh, the fourth is interesting is be elegant. Uh, and what I mean by be elegant, that's probably my English major speaking. Okay. It's this idea that like you choose your words very specifically, uh, that you are intentional about how you say things and how you derive insights. Um, and the last one is be fickle. And fickle to me means always be capturing ideas, but don't overly stress about figuring out what it means in the moment. Save the idea for later. 
Uh, and just like sometimes you get the best inspiration, like in the shower or when you've stopped thinking about something because of how our subconscious works, totally. the same way being fickle and constantly collecting stories, sometimes the, the value and the significance of them only emerges over time. I like that. So There's the first part of the book is just those five habits. I like the, I like the kind of holding on to those ideas and not having to, you know, push them out there in the world right away, because I feel like that's what everyone tries to do at all times. Especially with social media. Oh my God. I'm like love hate with that thing. And then the the second step, be curious. I feel like that's the biggest challenge people have as they get older. Yeah. I don't know. It just feels like just, you know, being around friends our age and in our forties and it feels like being 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 curious is too much work sometimes. It can be. Uh I mean it it can be. And and humans naturally, I mean, uh, you've been around a five-year-old, they're constantly asking why. They're always curious, right? About everything. We sort of get trained out of that, right. unfortunately, as we get older. Right, right. I know. My five-year-old just asked me why boys can't get pregnant. I'm like, oh my God. Yeah, see? Like, uh, I mean, crazy uh, question. I was like, solid. Like they, where... they might be able to in 30 years. So get, let's get back to that. Yeah, know. right. Or, or maybe now, I mean, <laughs> maybe, with, you know, yeah. trans, uh, transgender, whole, you know, all of that stuff. Like, right. Yeah, I, yeah. Already here. yeah. It was 8.30 p.m. <laughs> I was like, well, we'll talk about that later. It's fine. Um, but no, I, so I, uh, so that's the first part of the okay. book teaches you how to think in this way. Um, the second part is the actual trends themselves. And so non-obvious megatrends, the capstone of the 10-year project, uh, includes 10 megatrends that incorporate all of the different trends from previous years. So I didn't mention this, but every year that I did the report, there were 15 trends. Got it. So if you do the math across you know, nine years times 15, I mean, it's more than 100 trends. And they're all different were trends. Previously. They were all different. Okay. All different. Got it. Yeah. So there's two natural questions you might wonder. One is how do you elevate that into bigger ideas, which is what megatrends does. And the second is, were they all right? Right. You know, or were some of them wrong? Yeah. Uh, and so at the end of every year uh, edition of the book and at the end of megatrends, every single trend is given a letter grade based on whether it continued to accelerate over time or whether it didn't. Okay. And the way that I predict, I mean, predict is kind of a hard word because when I say prediction or future or predicting the future, people think that I'm guessing at what might happen. And that's not actually what I mean by a trend. The way I describe a trend, the way I define a trend, is that it's a curated observation of the accelerating present. Okay. So the key part of that is the accelerating present. Right. What I'm doing is paying attention to something that's already happening, and I'm predicting that it's going to accelerate. Right. It's like identifying Amazon before it becomes Amazon. Okay. Sort of. And so... When you think about trends that way, first of all, uh, you realize that you're never really wrong because you didn't guess at something that might happen. You observed something that's already, already happening. Okay. Um, the prediction is that it will accelerate. And that's where it could be on or off. It could be more right or less right. Right. Because it could accelerate as you predicted, or it could not accelerate. Right. And so when I wrote about megatrends, for example, two months before the pandemic, one of the megatrends I wrote about was something I called instant learning, okay. which was this growing desire for people to want to learn things faster. Right. Now, you know, two months into the pandemic, all of a sudden, all kids are doing virtual school. There's an entire campaign now, two years later, saying, I learned it on TikTok, where people learn how to do crazy stuff, normal stuff on TikTok. Yep. These are all elements of this same trend, which is we expect to learn everything faster than ever before. Right. And so you look at something like that and you're like, okay, that's an elevated idea. It applies to higher education, but also TikTok. But the observation is that our expectation as people is that we have all of this educational material at our fingertips and we can learn how to do everything faster from learning how to play the guitar to pouring out water by doing a swirl, which you can learn on TikTok. I mean, all of that stuff. Everything. Yeah. You can do fast. Yeah. 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 Like everything's uh, on fast forward. Yeah. Were there any trends that stayed? throughout every year or did they all die down every year? No, the way I, uh, I sort of came up with my own formula for this okay. um, because things would recur, but I also didn't want to be like, okay, you know, these five trends are the same every single right, year. Right. Yeah. So how do you do that? It doesn't add any new value. So the rule I came up with for myself was, um, there were 15 trends. Okay. And, uh, eventually five of them could be repeated. Okay. Right. From a previous trend that came back. 
but I couldn't repeat any trends from the previous year. So if I was going to repeat a trend, it had to be from two years older or older to bring back. Figured if there was a 2016 trend that I wrote about in 2019 and brought it back, then I could offer a new, it wasn't just cut and paste, right? I would offer a new dimension on right. it. I'd be like, since then, since I originally predicted this, these things happened, these are the new stories. So it was still original writing in terms of new stories and new ways of describing it, but right. it was the same trend brought back. Okay. Um, and so yeah. that's kind of how I did it. Right. Strongest trend you can talk about that you found throughout those years. You know, what's interesting is when I did the Megatrends book, every single one of the Megatrends at the end of that chapter for the Megatrend has 10 or 12 trends from past reports that elevated into the Megatrend. Got it. So in a sense, every one of the Megatrends was something that was a big idea over the course of years. Okay. I will say, I mean, one of them that has consistently been big is a trend that I, in Megatrends, I called it human mode. Okay. And human mode was the idea that the more we have technology and kiosks and automation and all of this stuff around us, the more value we place on something that's more human. Yes. That is person to person. Right. And that can be shown, that manifests in many different ways from uh, financial advisors to in-person experiences, to concerts, to Everything. Uh, conferences. I mean, so many different aspects right. of this. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. definitely excited to have meetings in person now. There's a different energy. I mean. Yeah. I've done way too many of these Zoom keynotes and it's just, you're just, you hope, you hope they're laughing, but you don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you hope you're, they're wearing pants, but you're not sure. Yeah. Well, I don't fun. care about that. You know? <laughs> like, fine, you know, whatever. Wear what you want. But like, you that's better true. laugh true. at my jokes. Yeah. That's what's important. Oh, me. trust me. That's like my number one. I'm like, if, if for anyone, friendships, marriage, I'm like, if you don't think yeah. I'm funny, we're done. That's fine. Exactly. It's one thing I depend exactly. on in my life. Yeah. Pants optional. Humor necessary 100% same page for sure is there a trend that you haven't shared yet that you can share with us today so interesting that you would ask um it it feeds into another question that i'm often asked by people which is okay you did this non-obvious trend thing for 10 years right then you did the last one right or so you say it was the last one right <laughs> so are you no longer researching the future are you no longer a futurist like right right and I am working on a new book that is all about the future. That's not a non-obvious trend book. Okay. And it's called The Future Normal. And it comes out in March of 2023. Actually, we're launching it at South by Southwest. Nice. And so there's a lot of trends that we'll be talking about in that book, but it's quite different the way that they're being talked about. And also I have a co-author on that one. Okay. And he's a British um, trend and foresight uh, expert. Okay. And so uh, it's quite different in how they're being laid out because what we're writing about and what we're talking about is what is going to be normal in the future. So it's a dose of non-obvious as in like, oh, I haven't heard about this before, but it's more about we think these things that are futuristic ideas will take off, but then many of them don't. don't like yeah. we still don't fly around in supersonic airline. Yes, yeah, right. Why don't we? Metaverse right? talk. Why did some things take off and some things didn't? Right. And that's kind of the intention of this book, to spot the things that do take off. And so this book will be uh, divided into three parts. Okay. And besides the kind of introduction stuff. Right. And the three parts will be how we live, uh, which is kind of the things that affect our daily lives, how we thrive, which is the things that will optimize our lives to right. make us the best versions of ourselves, and how humanity will survive, which is the far future stuff, like so that we don't, you know, torch the earth. <laughs> and other things well, like it's kind that. of already happening i um, feel like but yes. yes yes yeah yeah so so it's you know farther future than i typically would write about okay um so that's the way we've kind of broken up that book and so we're talking about so many interesting things in that from psychedelic wellness to uh certified media so we can tell what's fake and what's real uh just so many different aspects i mean i'm so excited for this book to come out it's going to be such a great way to spark conversations about right. these things that are often disparate. They're like over here or over there and you know about this thing, but you don't know about that thing. Like you might've heard about this thing, but you don't really know what the implication is. And so it's our chance to put it all together. This is kind of maybe a book for everyone. Does it matter? Right, left, what really, like what, whatever it is. It's just, it's just topics that we're all discussing somewhere at some point. 
kind of thing. We were uh, sort of laughing about our tagline saying, if, if you want to have a future, then you are the audience for this book. I like, mean, it's pretty, <laughs> I think that's pretty good. It's a pretty good hit. And yeah. well, one first question, how did you find your co-author and why did you guys choose to work together? And then two, this must take a lot of research because again, there's just so many, so much out 100%. there, so many people out there talking about all this stuff. And so yep. how do you decide where to go, who to talk to about these topics? So uh, on the first uh, question, the way we chose each other, because that's how co-author relationships have to work, right. uh, is we've known each other for a long time okay. and been in similar circles. So it wasn't a new relationship, but we started talking and his perspective, he's based in the UK. Okay. Uh, and so he's very tapped into European innovation because he's often traveling across Europe. I'm obviously in the US and then I travel to various places. So first of all, we had this differing perspective of American uh, sort of marketplace and European marketplace, which right. we thought was really interesting to right. be able to globalize our insights. The other thing is that we had similar but complementary skills. Uh, I have more of the sort of marketing culture mind. Um, he often talks about and looks deeper into technology and uh the sort of innovation side okay and so when we started putting those pieces together we realized we could create a really nuanced version of the future that right. we couldn't neither one of us could really achieve on our own right plus when you have a co-author ideally it makes the process easier for both of you so the lift is not all no on one totally person, i'm sure which i also like yeah and then we just uh, we just we wanted to work together. I mean, he, yeah. he was a friend and, and I respected him as a colleague and we wanted a chance to do something together. Yeah. I, mean, I feel like at this point in your career, it's it's as important to work with the person you want to or the people that you want to than you know, yeah. the product. I mean, is. my last book was co-authored also right. it was, um, with Jennifer Brown and it was all about diversity. So it was a departure for me from the whole non-obvious ecosystem. Um, it was all about diversity and inclusion, which was a different topic for me, but I brought in an, a co-author who was an expert in that space and we wrote it together and it was great. Uh, so That's awesome. as a writer, I just want to explore new things and do different things um, as well. Right. I mean, like you said, when you get to a certain point, you're like, I just want to do fun stuff. Yeah, like, no, totally. I'm going to have to come to you when I'm ready to write my, my book. Yeah, uh, you should. That would sure. be great. That would be fun. Sure. Yeah. I know you initially were a consultant consulting company um and then you yeah. want to switch over to helping smaller businesses and just and just leaders kind of in all realms so is that what you're currently what are you currently doing now with the company is it still working with different business leaders you know i i i am a small business okay and uh i affiliate that way okay but i never really worked with small business like my whole career has always been big companies okay. big corporates okay uh, that's who i advise that's who i worked with in brand strategy and when i started my own thing that's who i started to work with for consulting okay but i realized that uh first of all my time just didn't scale in that way and i wanted to do all these writing and producing shows and producing content right and the keynote speaking was keeping me busy enough. Right. And the the upside of keynote speaking is you get in for a very short period of time, you create this spark of inspiration, but there's no ongoing relationship there right. usually. So it's one from and a done. time and delivery right. point of view, it's like, yeah, you do the one talk and then you hand over to somebody right. or you or you hopefully let them go and do something. Make so a I few uncle jokes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, you just, you, you give what you give. Right. But it's a short-term engagement. Right. It's not like long term. So that really fit my time schedule. Okay. Um, so that became key. Also, the publishing company started taking off and we started taking on more and bigger authors. And that was just personally for me, it ended up being really fulfilling because what I started realizing about myself is the you talked about imposter syndrome before. The bigger you, the bigger stages you get onto, and the more popular you become as a keynote speaker, the more you have to fit that role of a performer. And the challenge for some people, I think, is when you start to see yourself in that role, you start to develop an ego that matches that. Right. And you become an asshole. Right. And I didn't want that to happen to me. I don't think I'm currently an asshole, but I didn't want to become one because I was getting on these big stages right. and having this great success. Right. And having a business like publishing where you're very behind the scenes, I mean, that is a behind the scenes business. Like it's not me on the book. Right. I'm working with these authors, but it's their book. It's their show. They're the hero. 
And what that allowed me to do personality wise was channel that reality into that other business so that I didn't become that asshole. Right. I could be big. I'm sure your wife will tell you if you're an asshole, right? She would, you know, she would tell me immediately. And and also having kids, I feel like helps that helps ground you as well. Totally. Yeah. Especially having teenage boys and my oldest just started college now. So like, you know, they will tell you directly. They'd be like, you know, congrats. (laughs) That's a big deal. That's amazing. Yeah. 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 Very cool. I'm just, I'm just asking as a small business here, you know, just, just, yeah, just yeah, yeah. Usually it is. Um, usually it's that. And then what I started doing is I started producing books okay. that would help uh, other companies. So I wrote a guidebook to marketing and branding Right. that was called the non-obvious guide. And we launched this whole series that was meant to compete with the dummies guides. And I wrote two of them about, I wrote about working remotely and I wrote about marketing and branding. And then there's six others from other authors and we have another kind of five or six in development. Okay. And the whole idea behind that, and then I'm about to launch an online course as well, which is about publishing and marketing. You have a YouTube channel as well, right? I do. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do um, kind of what, what you're doing, but uh, just with authors. So okay. it's like a show about interviewing authors about their book. So I just did one this morning um, that will launch soon. So I was on video for that on the flip side, which was kind of nice because now I just get to answer questions. And then the other one I had to uh, ask them. Yeah, so. yeah. Yeah, you are doing but, a lot, my friend. Wow. And you have a kid in college. I just realized yeah. like you are young. You're 47. You have a kid in college. <laughs> yeah, I had, we had him when uh, I was 29. So I guess that's pretty young these days to have a kid. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, not, yeah, nowadays it is that, but hey, it's amazing. He's, for, a, he's, for a guy at least. He's, too, he's out the know? door. So that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you miss him. Is, um, started, yeah. But we get to see him. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, it's, I mean, you, you, you know, you definitely miss him. Yeah. But um, my younger one just started high school. Okay. Uh, and so we still have one uh, one here. Yeah. My husband and I were joking by the time our, or, or my elder one is, elder one is eight. And I was like, by the time she gets to college, I'm like, are we going to be okay? <laughs> we will be. We will be. We're not that old, I swear. Okay. First of all, congrats on everything. This is amazing. You are, I definitely will check out the books and I've checked out your website. I actually was starting to read your newsletter. Um, your latest one on Elon, Elon and Twitter. Um, and so, uh, it's a great newsletter. So congrats on everything you're doing and I hope to see you you. in Austin. I'm I'm trying to get there. You have to, because it's going to be a great party. Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually trying to figure out how to get the podcast in. So I'm I'm trying to work, work on that. So I will, I will will let you know, let's talk about, let's talk about you growing up a little bit. So I assume, I know you went to George Mason undergrad and then Emory. Did you grow up in the East coast then? Yeah, actually, I went to Emory undergrad and then George Mason for uh, okay. master's. Master's, um, okay. But yeah, I did. Uh, so I was born in India. Okay. Um, Which part? But we left when I was one year old. I was born in Kanpur. Okay. Um, in UP. Yeah. Uh, but we left pretty, when I was super young, because my dad ended up getting a job at the World Bank in DC. Okay. And so growing up, I was lucky because they they had a bunch of different benefits, uh, one of which was that they would allow our whole family to go back on a paid trip to India every two years. Very nice. So I have a lot of friends who, immigrant families, they grew up here, but they never really got to go back to India that much because it was expensive. Right. Uh, For us, every two years, the World Bank would send us back to India, all four of us. That's awesome. Uh, So I was able to keep these connections with family over there. Uh, Sadly, my Hindi is pretty pathetic, but, you know, the connections with the family, um, I was able to keep. Yeah, uh, because of that, and uh, and that was great. But also, it allowed us because of his his job and what he did. It allowed us to travel internationally, right? Um, very often. So I was sort of joking with with my wife when we first got married and we started doing like uh, Christmas tree around the holidays and all of that stuff. And the boys got used to it. I was like, you know, when I grew up, we were never at home in December. We were international somewhere, some country. Right. That was not a time that we were at home. That was the time when we had a break and we would just travel. Go travel. Yeah. Well, um, you know, and I recognize that was, you know, that was a pretty interesting way to grow up. I'm psychoanalyzing you right now. I'm trying to be armchair expert here, but like, okay, go. I feel like, you know, I, I didn't travel probably as much as you did because we, we lived in Houston our whole lives, but we did, my parents did try more than a lot more Indian parents did. I went to India like every other year. Like we had to, my parents were like, save up money for that. Yeah. And I would spend the summers killing mosquitoes with newspapers, but it was fun. <laughs> but I do think with the amount of travel that you did as a child, that has to have helped your whole, the whole aspect of, 
uh, being curious and being empathetic and being more open to these observations than most. Yeah, I mean, my uh, especially when it when it came to India, I'll always remember what my what my parents and particularly my mom would always say uh, because India is very different. I mean, we were you know, we were not super wealthy. The family was not super wealthy. And so when we went to India, I mean, we were literally taking showers with, uh, you know, a bucket of water. Mm -hmm. They had the big bucket with the water and you had the yep. small bucket and you would dump it on yourself and you'd have to take the shower, a shower, I guess you could call it a I shower. I thought it was but, fine you know, though. Back was, then, I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, it was fun, but like you yeah. had to, you couldn't waste time because nope. the water would cool down. We did have hot water. Yeah. So, but you had to like, you know, get it before it like, <laughs> lost it's it. like you had to wake up six to eight to get that hot water. I remember my ba would yeah, be like saving right. the water that's for right. me. She would just slap my ass that's and be right. like, get in. And I would, I'll be like, hell yes, <laughs> I have to get in. Yeah. But you know, what she would always tell us is she said, India's India and America's America. And you cannot compare them. They're very different places. Right. And I always remember that because that's the, the tendency, especially for kids, is to be like, oh, I don't have this. I don't have that because I have this at home and I don't have that here. Right. And so one is better than the other. Right. And when you go in with that mindset of saying they're not to be compared, they're right. totally, different. totally different. It's like it's like uh, comparing an apple to fried rice. Right. Like, you know, they're not even the same category. Right. Right. Then you you encourage that type of mindset. So I think you're right. Like that it has been a big element in how I grew up and maybe how I see the world now. Yeah. So what's your relationship to India now? And what was your relationship growing up as an Indian American? Did you love it? Were you embarrassed? Um, I think that I was probably for most of my childhood, I was probably incidentally Indian. Okay. Um, I don't I like think that. I really ran towards it. Okay. Uh, but I don't think I was actively ashamed of it either. Okay. Um, I think it was just part of who I was. I was lucky enough to grow up in an area where we didn't have a lot of racism as a child. So it wasn't like I would get made fun of for that. Uh, I think it also, I mean, as a boy in school, your worth often is dependent on your athletic ability. And I was always an athletic kid. Okay. Um, and so, Oh, that helps a lot. And I didn't get, yeah, I didn't get picked on the way that you would imagine a, a sort of, you know, a dorky immigrant, skinny Indian boy. Yeah. But yeah. 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 Um, I had with like the little mustache in middle school. I did have the little mustache, you know, cause I, I should have been shaving when I was in seventh grade and I only started in like ninth or 10th. So yeah, I did. Hey, have that. So, same here, by um, the way, same here. My, my son started shaving in seventh. I'm like, Hey man, if you want to shave, like I'll teach you how, like, let's go. Let's yeah. do it. There's no need to wait. You don't need that whole two years of peach fuzz. Hey, moment Rohit, in your life. I'm sorry. Like, I don't feel bad for any of you guys. Try being an Indian girl. All right. Oh yeah. I know. Yeah. That's, uh, and that's and, and in the nineties when my, my mom was like, yeah, you don't need to. So <laughs> definitely saved me yeah, from not having hard. boyfriends for a long time. So that helped. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. <laughs> That's a master plan. On it's a the, master plan. Part. I mean, but, I might yeah. use it with my girls. I'm trying to figure it out, though. I mean, let me see. Let, yeah. me, let me see how they all <laughs> I think roll you'll out. have more empathy for them because <laughs> yeah. you had to go through it yourself. So I was yeah. going to ask you then, because I mean, I, I don't know if you, you know, a lot of my guests, when I ask them about their experiences and they, you know, they have great or, or not great, um, a lot of them do have these pivotal stories from high school or middle school that kind of defined who they were as an Indian American or like, was it like a spark saying, oh, I love being Indian American or, oh, my God, this is so embarrassing. Do you have any of those middle school, high school stories? You know, um, I would say that, well, to, to answer your other question, I realized and embraced more of being Indian, I think, when I married an Indian woman. Okay. Um, so that was the point in my life where I really kind of went much deeper into kind of being Indian. Okay. I, before then, I sort of enjoyed the superficial stuff. I always loved the food. You know, I knew very little about it. Uh, but I lived in this atmosphere that didn't really have a lot of Indian people. Not so much when I grew up as a kid, because I did see Indian people then. But I went to college in Atlanta, which okay. was in the South. Yep. Um, not a huge amount of Indians. And I joined a fraternity in that college, which had no, well, one Indi other Indian besides me. Um, otherwise it was pretty, it wasn't all white people. It was all kind of a pretty international, which right. is why I liked it, but it wasn't Indian. Got it. So my group in college wasn't Indian. And then after I graduated college, I moved to Australia, yeah. a country that basically had a white Australia policy until like the 1980s. Right. So, you know, you want to talk about super not diverse. Yes. I loved Australia, you loved it. but it was not diverse at all. Okay. 
And because I'd grown up in America, I didn't have a problem being the only Indian. Right. Uh, that never really bothered me. Okay. Uh, and my story, I think, around that was uh, that there were all of these times that I now look back on where I realized that I was the first or the only Indian. And I could have done more to bring more Indians into that or built a community or been a leader in a way that welcomed more people who looked like me. Got it. And it's not like I avoided them, but I also didn't do anything. You didn't think about to, it. I didn't think about it. Right. Yeah. Right. And now I realize that there were a lot of missed opportunities where I really could have. Right. I could have become a voice for more inclusion. I could have bridged these gaps where it wasn't just all the Indians hanging out over here and all the, you know, somebody else hanging out over here. Like I could have done more to bring people together and I didn't. You yourself are growing. You, are, you yourself are finding your path in your career. So it's hard to kind of. I feel like that takes a little bit of time and age and experience to be able to to bridge and you know not that I'm saying younger younger people can't do it, but um it's understandable why no i mean i i um I can totally self justify it yeah, right? yeah. For, for me but but I also know that there were many times as I was growing up and even in college where I was in a position of leadership, right like I had the the power right. to do something right, and I just never thought of it. Yeah. Um, so that's where I see the missed opportunity. It's not like I, I mean, if you don't have that self-awareness or you're not in that position, I get it. Like, you know, okay, you would, you wish you could have done it, but I was like literally the president and I didn't bring that, I didn't do any of that stuff. Right. So, yeah. you know, that's a missed opportunity. I think that makes sense. Well, you know what? Never too late. Yeah. I mean, look, we have done, like I said, I mean, I, over the last 20 years, I've really, moved much deeper towards it. I mean, my wife who grew up in Canada, but was also born in India and left when she was six. Um, she'd done a lot of work in diversity. We teamed up to do a whole summit around diversity. We wrote a book, like I mentioned a year right. ago about being more inclusive. We do a lot of work now around that. We've held internship programs for people who are um, people of color and Indians to get into publishing, which, because I believe there's not enough brown people in publishing right. and, and the arts in general. Right. And so, you know, we don't need any more brown engineers. Like I want people to yeah. <laughs> like come on yes. into, into other industries. Right. Yeah, so totally. right now I feel like we're really doing a lot, um, but it wasn't always that hey, way. Hey, you know what? You saying yes to this podcast is doing something. <laughs> and you doing the podcast is, uh, is also that, I mean, you know, you've got a, yeah, you've got a great audience and you've done a lot of these and, and, uh, and you're good at it. Yeah. And that's important for people to see, right? Because uh, they need to see that. They need to see the auntie who's doing that, right? They the need funny, to see the, the funny auntie. You mean that. the funny auntie? You mean? Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So make sure. Let's make sure we remember um, that part. Uh, totally. Yeah. Totally. That's uh, <laughs> we, we're we're going for our role in the uh, yes in the, in the landscape. Of, I have worked uh, of really community. hard. I couldn't shave till tenth grade. I have worked really hard for this position. So <laughs> need this. That's great. All right, fast-ish round. First thing that you can think of. Okay. Who would be your dream collaboration? Steve Martin. What do you want to be known for at the end of your career? Helping people be more open-minded and non-obvious, of course, because I'm a brand guy. It's got to be on brand. <laughs> what would your parents tell their friends at a dinner party that you do for a living? Write books. As soon as you have a book, they're super proud. They can hold it up. They can literally hold it up. My dad gives my book to everybody. I gotta, I gotta, <laughs> I gotta reverse for a second. I know you, your majors in undergrad were not typical. I believe English. I did an English yeah. literature major with a, a, a lot of poetry concentration. Right. And I did a marketing, marketing major. Mom and dad freak out? They did when I was just going to do English. Okay. Uh, and then my dad was like, you got to do a business degree too. And so that was sort of, yes. the double major was sort of motivated by him saying, yeah, I don't think I'm going to pay for this thing if you don't uh, go and do a useful major. <laughs> Love it. Okay. I forgot to ask that because like when I read your major, I was like, and then of course you're, we're all around the same age. I'm like, wow, that's ballsy of you. So good for you for sticking with what you wanted to you do. Yeah, I was lucky. I mean, my dad, yeah. uh, my dad is very successful. He has a PhD in economics, but his dad wanted him to be a doctor and he chose not to. Wow. And so, you know, he grew up with that pressure of his parents saying that he needed to be one thing and he didn't want to do wow. that. So I think that he never really put that type of pressure on me because he knew what that felt like. I mean, he just has a PhD. Jeez. Like it's just a backup. 
I know, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm wow. like, and he, he doesn't use the doctor in front of his name that often. And I'm like, you know, if I had a PhD, I would hire an, a personal assistant to call everyone I know to say, please hold for Dr. Bruggen. I would have that like in like think. the highest font in bold in LinkedIn. Like I would be yeah, so I obnoxious know, right? about it. Okay? It would be bad. It would be like my background <laughs> picture, just PhD. <laughs> yeah. So uh, tell your dad, I think he did okay, which I'm sure he knows. Okay. Last two fast round. If you had a billboard, a permanent billboard anywhere in the country, what would it say? It would say, be more interesting. Because I think that people talk about a lot of stupid shit and are boring oftentimes, and they don't need to be. Yeah. Uh, I would say be more interesting. And definitely they're not funny. So fine. Yeah, exactly. If I do come to South by Southwest and we meet, are you down to have a dance off? Let's do it. We got the South Asian house. We have to do it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> the saying, I won a lot of Ross and Gerba competitions. So Okay, see, I'm not saying that I could win. And I used I'm to break dance. That, I'm just throwing it all you know, out there. Yeah, you did say competition. So maybe I should bow out of this thing before uh, I embarrass myself. Uh, if it was flash mob or something that was more fun oriented, <laughs> then I'd be like, all right, let's do that. Uh, if it's a competition, I'm setting myself up. No, no, I don't. I don't dance for fun ever. It's always just to okay. win. It's always just to win something. So, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. it's my problem. I mean, the last time I said yes to something crazy at South by Southwest, I ended up in a dunk tank on a freezing day. So as the target. Um, so maybe I should be more intentional about what I agree to do. <laughs> All right, guys, I have decided that I am going to be a futurist. I predict that I will be picking up my kids and sitting in carpool for 20 to 42 minutes every day for the rest of my life pretty exciting stuff. Guys, check out Rohit's work. Go to nonobvious.com. Obviously, you will love it. Sorry, I have so many of these non-obvious obvious jokes. I had to let one out. I was trying to behave during the interview. And also, if you guys are going to South by Southwest, he's going to be speaking there as well. You'll meet him. You can hang out with me. It's going to be fun. As always, you can follow me at tuckered.podcast, tuckered.withummy.com. Rate, review on Apple, subscribe to my newsletter, get me a drink. I mean, obviously, obviously. Okay, yeah, I've been really bad at my accents my whole life. Love you guys. Thank you for listening. This is Tuckered Out. Out.